There's this commonality with nature that we share in being circadian beings. That once I started using this version of time, I felt something in common with the pot, pot plant in my studio, that we both had these kind of rhythms that were set by daylight and nothing, and nothing to do with numbers, like time is not a numerical phenomenon. Um, and that level of kind of a shared reality really opened me up to a lot of kind of empathy with the living world and respect for it, or kind of duty of care for it as well, or even the rhythms of kind of the cycles of growth and dormancy. You're listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast with me, Dan Burgess. Welcome to the show. Uh, this is episode 30 of the Spaceship Earth podcast. Uh, in this episode, I'm in conversation with designer Ted Hunt. The Spaceship Earth podcast is where I'm having conversations with inspiring humans who are on a mission to reimagine, redesign and heal our world as we shift from industrial growth society and passive consumer culture to becoming crew on the Spaceship Earth, fully participating with all life in the co-creation of a more beautiful, life-sustaining world. It's where I'm asking, how might we thrive in a world that's alive? Uh, in this episode, I'm in conversation with designer Ted Hunt. Um, Ted uh, describes himself as uh, a speculative, a discursive, critical designer. And you'll find out exactly what that is when we get into conversation. Um, and his work really is exploring the kind of intersections between our ancient behavioural driven selves and our modern technologically driven selves. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know you need to listen to this, don't you? Um, and he's sort of exploring constantly this kind of uh, the non-linear alternative paradigms um, and examines the boundaries between subjective, objective and intersubjective interpretations and perspectives. Exactly. You really know you need to listen to this. He graduated from the Royal College of Art in 2016 and Ted is, pro is prolific in his work, always, always uh, experimenting, always putting things out into the world to try and get kind of feedback and learning. Um, I have a huge, huge respect for this man. He's, um, yeah, prolific in his work massive heart insanely curious um and the sort of designer i think we just would be amazing to see more of people like ted uh, sort of more of ted without a doubt but this kind of work that ted's exploring is basically in my sort of layman's terms i would explore i would uh, describe ted's work as ted, ted puts work out which helps people challenge uh, or see that a lot of these kind of deeply embedded assumptions and constructs that we live our lives by and we sort of, uh, you know, we organise ourselves as, as humanity on this planet, they are just that, constructs and ideas which have been created by humans at some point in the past and uh, we've been sort of somehow convinced that that's, the, uh, that's what reality is. And Ted's work tends to tends to kind of help you see that actually we could see beyond these ideas. They are just constructs. They are just ideas. So at this moment in time, I, I believe people like Ted are really, really, really important in our culture because they're helping us um, see that other ways are possible. Better ways are possible. Uh, we can start to see how maybe how sort of damaging a lot of our assumptions are that we live by and a lot of these constructs are. So, you know, 
I'm really excited by this one. It was a great shout. I have to quote a quick shout out as well to the folks at Acast who lent me a little studio, an amazing studio, a proper studio uh, up in London um, at the last minute to record this in. Um, so uh, big respect to them. Um, so this was a slightly shorter episode. We probably could have spoken for about 14 hours, but we didn't. We kept it fairly tight. Um, as is my ambition this year in, in 2020 is to, is to really try and up the game on this podcast to get the episodes flowing a bit more regularly. I'm going to keep it, I'm going to keep it fairly uh, tight here on the front and the back end so uh, I can get these out faster. So, yeah, I'm going to leave it at that. If you like what you're hearing on the Spaceship Earth podcast, please either share it, give us a rating or a like on Apple Podcasts or whoever you're, you're listening to. It really does help the podcast uh, surface and travel to others and it would be amazing if you could do that it would take you literally a few seconds um, if you want to get in touch you can drop me a line at dan at spaceship.earth you can get us on instagram at at the spaceship.earth um, yeah really hoping that 2020 is a year of uh, of, of beautiful shifts for everyone so um, let's cut straight to it now this is episode 30 uh, of the spaceship earth with ted hunt Ted, welcome to the Spaceship Earth podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Good to be here. Good to see you. I mean, you know, you see my my uh, updated studio in uh, central London. Yeah, we're very spaceship-esque <laughs> today, actually. We are. we are. I have to say, I'm very, um, very uh, grateful to uh, um, to Acast. And I feel like I've I feel like I've gone up a notch at the start of 2020. I'm not in a shed. Uh, um, we're actually in a in a in a proper a proper podcasting studio, soundproofed um, room. I know the glass window I going through to where the en- sound engineer would be. E- exactly. So I'm hoping this is a sign of the year to come that uh, the uh, the prototype of the spaceship podcast is now. Yeah. You know, we're into a different phase. But I have a feeling. Um, I think I have a feeling that might not be the case. But anyway, thanks for finding the time for today. Um, now we're in sort of a uh, proper sort of commercial studio. We've actually got some, <laughs> we've actually got some time constraints. Mm. Quite often get on a ramble on this show, as uh, as listeners know. Um, so we're going to get quite stuck in. Um, now I'm really interested to unpack some of the stuff you're up to right now. You've got a, you've got a sort of fascinating history of um, what I would call experimentation. And um, um, you you describe yourself as a speculative, discursive, critical designer. Yeah, I love that. Tell me about that. Like, well, that's the um, of all the questions you probably asked me today. The what do you do? How do you describe yourself? Is my biggest fear the one I got the big pro- problem with? I was thinking maybe in the next hour it might even work that out. But yeah, on my <laughs> website it says that I'm a speculative slash critical slash discursive designer. Um, and Which, by the way, I, agree, I totally agree with. I just want to know, like, <laughs> some more about it. The the notions or not knowing what you do is a whole. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I have that um, all the time. I was, I was funny, actually. I was actually writing. I'm in the midst of writing my sort of uh, 20, my 2020 intentions because I like to sort of, sort of publicly put some stuff out. Mm. It helps me. Every time I do that, I tend to sort of get close to achieving some of them. But I was actually writing about... Um, you know this notion of not knowing what I what's my what's my deep specialism yeah. and how actually over the years it used to be quite problematic for me, mm. but actually in the last you know I would say the last year actually maybe a little bit longer I've become really comfortable with this kind of pluralistic yeah thing. yeah and I sort of know that that's actually that's why I am what I am you know? yeah and there are threads so anyway yeah <laughs> but no I think it's almost part of the problem we're in is the obsession with certainty. And everyone having 
titles and formulas and missions and visions that are really singular mm. and maybe we'll get into this later but it's kind of the problem that i see is the difference between newton's absolute reality in terms of science and einstein's relativity so the absolute reality is that everything is objective and can be measurable and quantified and la 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 and he had his vision of time that was absolute yeah. and then einstein came along and found that time itself is relative and it's interjoined and it bends and gravity affects it um, and I think, yeah, that in the phase we are in in humanity at the minute, it was like we went with the age of enlightenment yeah. completely towards absolutism and everyone being really certain about things. And it hasn't paid off. And right. now we're getting a bit unsure. Um, but back to the, what I do, <laughs> so you're, you're, the, the speculative so critical. you not just a designer. <laughs> I'm relatively a designer. <laughs> but ma ma perhaps that could be a thing. I'm a, yeah. I'm a relativity designer. Yeah. I think maybe there will be more or an uncertainty designer. that. Um, people who are actually just really unsure about things. But the speculative, critical, discursive design has kind of come out of my background. I studied graphic design in university, and when I graduated, it was the rise of the dot-com boom, so I went straight into website design and then more advertising marketing and got a bit disillusioned with that, as a lot of people yeah. in our, our circles have yes. been, and maybe a lot of your listeners, and end up getting ejected again. Um, so I went off doing more freelance consultancy type stuff and my own self-initiated work. And then it got to the point where I decided to go back to study to the Royal College of Arts. I'd always wanted to go there and kind of missed it in the early part of my education. So I went back there as a mature student and studied a course called Design Interaction and a professor called Anthony Dunn who does really interesting work. And his notion is that um, what the question is, what happens if you decouple design from industry? If you think about design and creativity a lot now, or people that are just kids that are creative and they follow that through university, they end up getting eaten up by advertising or design world. And it's such a kind of a, an industry-focused area where you've got a client who wants to pay this creative person to add value to what they're doing via the process of design so they can make money. So his question was, what if you decouple design from that narrative, from industry, from money, what then can it do? And use it as a tool to speculate about alternatives, alternative futures. So that really appealed to me. Wow. And then the critical notion is to take a lot of kind of thinking from critical thought, critical theory, which is normally embedded in books and literature and is quite cerebral, and then put that into design as kind of like an aesthetic. Well, exactly, yeah. So everyone knows what a designed object is in our everyday lives. So if you put some critical notions, kind of challenging consensus into those things, they might more easily adopt it and understand it than they otherwise would. And then the discursive point is that the end product of what I'm doing is intended for situations like this, for discussions, to have a conversation over it and not to be a problem-solving tool or a money-making tool or a business venture or any of those things, again, where kind of design has classically got itself caught up into either willingly or unwillingly. So it, their conversation starters. So it's like opening up, opening up mm. thing that can, you know, these ideas that can open up or interventions or things that can open up your, your thinking, your... Mm imagination yeah to other possibilities yeah and not necessarily and specialized yeah propose a single solution to this and frame it as a problem with a solution like sometimes they're actually um they raise more problems than they do solutions or there's people you would look at that and there's actually loads of contradictions tied up in what you're proposing but in 
raising that, people are then considering the contradictions and then how they might be complicit in it, how I'm complicit in it, how everyone's complicit in it. Um, so that's a bit on what I'm phrasing myself doing and there's kind of a whole field of people practicing that type of, type of design now and it's been quite liberating and emancipating in a way that people have just been taking up this challenge of practicing design not for commercial aim and it's not unique to this course I was on that people for eras have done design which was just kind of for their own self-exploration um, but it's kind of it's it's getting quite a lot of traction now and quite a lot of attention because it tends to be quite weird as well a lot of its outputs yeah and I guess like I mean is that I mean I guess that's the the sort of you know if if we had if we had our if we were able to kind of sustain our core needs in the world as creators as designers would we would we would we be more drawn to this this type of practice you know are we drawn into kind of design for commercial gain because of the allure of mm. you know, I mean obviously the, the you know the need to kind of um take part participate in the economic system that we're in but also like I mean, I just, you know do you get a sense that actually the work you know this space that you're moving into now do you, is this is this something intuitively where, where many designers want to go but actually just feel they can't because of economic constraints yeah, or no, the ability to be commercial I was or, thinking about this the other day and I was reading about the ratchet effect you know the ratchet effect it's like a, or cultural ratchets so things like um, the evolution of language or the written word is called cultural ratchet so once you've discovered it you can't go back it, and it's kind it. of like you keep going up up and up so you imagine like a mechanical ratchet with a uh, the teeth on it and then like the, the needle or the lever holding the weight of the teeth right. and then you wind it up like you're going to jack a car so up so it holds away. Yeah. yeah. And the ratchet in terms of creative or design education. So even when you're in university level, you're still practicing a lot of kind of non-client, open-ended, um, quite theoretical work. But then you graduate and you're out, out in the world and you have to pay bills and you take a job which is with a, an agency or you're freelancing and you've got clients and they're paying you and then suddenly you almost you become in servitude because they've got the money and you're providing the service and that seems like a really key ratchet that you've gone over that point and now that's just a reality and you had all of your ideals before that and I think it was true for me that yeah. I graduated as a student with a lot of my own kind of idealistic worldview and a lot of my work was very experimental and I came to London to get a job and I was going to interviews and people were like, oh, this is all really nice, but I just can't see how you'd fit in here or how I'd deploy your skills. So then I had to start taking case studies for commercial projects and showing how I'd then interpret those and then showing those in interviews and people then got it. And then, but then you get stuck in that system and that just becomes normal. The, it's kind of clients pay you money to do this thing. So I think, yeah, um, for lots of designers, creative people, it's very usual up until the age of about 2021, 20, maybe, to be in the more speculative or critical side or challenging norms or doing things that had never been done before. Or even for kids, like well, it was the quote about everyone starts off creative, everyone's an artist, uh, the Picasso one, and then you get educated out of it. Yeah, sort of conditioned, mm. institutionalized to... Yeah, to to fit into this, uh, yeah, this sort of certain thing. So in some ways, it's a return to that. It's kind of exploring questions via the act of creativity, which is quite pleasurable as well. It's kind of it's, I see it as a hobby, and it's kind of something that I really enjoy doing. 
because I, I remember a few years back actually I remember you uh, talking you know very you were very intentional I think this was when you were doing the when you'd gone to Royal College of Art but, but or prior to that but or even after but you were very intentional about how you carve your time up mm. so the need to obviously you know sustain yourself in the in the economic system <laughs> so there's a sort of like finding yourself you know applying yourself to to, to freelance projects which enable you to do that yeah being very intentional about creating the space you need to pursue this yeah what you're doing now that's still going now <laughs> luckily um so i've and got how do you find that switch like when you're going in, you're going back into the the certain increasingly <laughs> hard, as we were talking about before we started. But my formula at the minute is if I do three months advertising consultancy, I'm a creative strategist that essentially pays for nine months of my own work to self initiate and not having to work worry about income. Which talking to a lot of people, that is I'm a very privileged formula. Like three to nine, a lot of people don't get that, and a lot of that is to do with my overheads are quite low. Well, we might get into this later, but I live in a canal boat on London, right. so I don't pay mortgages and electric bills and council tax and all those things. So I've managed to, over a process of time, lower all my overheads, yeah. which then afforded me this ability to go back and study at Royal College of yeah. Art and now to use this formula of doing the three months to nine. Um, sometimes there's a real kind of dialogue between the two, like almost knowing your enemy in a way for the um, the self-initiated versus the client-centric or just kind of how the so-called real world works of money-making businesses and the kind of the pressures they're under or the kind of motivators for them. Getting exposed to that doesn't allow me to kind of live in my own little bubble and be in an ivory tower and be really idealistic about things. Yeah. Um, but sometimes my mind just doesn't, um, fit into those spaces, or increasingly, I'm having finding I just have to having to turn work down because it yeah. just doesn't align with my own beliefs. Yeah, and it's kind interesting of, that, isn't it? That whole that whole thing of of um, operating off a sort of deeper set of values or or principles, and how mm. you can, like to say having the, having to kind of have these feet in different camps, and you know, working on the edges of these things. Mm. Um, and like you say, the ability to sort of um, see see a project rationally and I can deliver something useful here, hopefully, to yeah. people. But also increasingly as the world around us becomes, you know, it becomes more blooming obvious of <laughs> yeah. where the problems yeah, lie. Yeah, yeah. How long can we keep, you know, how long do you are you able to keep doing that? You yeah. Know, and, um, it's an interesting one. There was a phrase I heard recently that kind of frames it very well for me. And I think it's from, it's either from Greta or kind of Greta's generation of climate activists and it's less bad isn't good right and i feel like i saw that in your narrative uh well something in your narrative thing which is about what was it was uh, yeah, yeah less bad isn't good as as you know we need you know these these frames mm. that we use yeah still and i almost feel like being self-critically like our generation generation x that kind of took, took over the baton from the baby boomers who were like very um profit centric and put a lot of these systems in place again either knowingly or unknowingly but the criticism of us is I think maybe we went a bit less bad, that we just took systems that were very bad and we made them a bit less bad and made out that they're entirely good because of that, but they're still pretty deep yeah. into taking us to where we don't need to be. Yeah. And um, we're proposing, and the law like the virtue signaling and greenwashing and everything that comes with that. And again, when you work in advertising and marketing, that's exactly essentially what you're being asked to do is make something look less bad but propose that this is really good. 
Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> load of bollocks, basically. Mm. <laughs> but but there's also, and there's also you, you could argue that even in this frame, sustainability, right? You know, su- sustaining this thing right now, but actually we're we're trying to sustain the 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 less bad model. Yes, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, which is which is still um, you know hugely destructive. Yeah, human level, planetary level, whatever. Yeah. Um, fascinating. So the, I want to dig into you talk about um, this thing that was. I love, which is investigating the intersections between our ancient behavioural, behavioural-driven selves and our modern technologically-driven selves, and and there's some of your most recent stuff that I'd love to to jump into. I think really, that sort of really sort of expresses that, mm. but like the Circus Solar Project. But just tell me about this 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 kind of this place that you're exploring, this kind of this ancient self versus this kind of techno self tell me where's that come from for you and there was almost maybe like a lot of people's stories there's almost the epiphany moment um so when i was freelancing um before i went to the royal college of art and in the times i didn't have a contract i'd just hang out in members rooms um and do my own projects in there and i got a membership to the british museum member room um and i was just working a lot from there and spending a lot of time in the british museum and just almost picking up the aura of being around lots of ancient artifacts um and then i applied to go to the royal college of art and i was it was on a course it was to do with a lot of kind of future focused work and kind of preferable futures or realizing what the narratives of dystopian futures might look like and I um I saw the relationship between what had happened in the past and what is might happen in the future and the kind of the trajectory between the two and how the very notion of innovation or the Silicon Valley one of kind of like something is like a pure new idea and the obsession with newness and the world's first. Do you remember that whole, it's still going on now, like advertising's obsession with the world's first this, the world's first yeah. that, yeah, um, totally. which I think is just kind of like this media narrative that goes on. Um, but I was like, rather than just look for these brand new things that no one's ever seen before and this obsession with new, what happens if you look backwards in order to look forwards? Um, so an example of that is the search engine I made, the alternative to Google, based on the principles of Socratic questioning. So it's like a 3,000-year-old search engine. Um, and Socrates being seen as the father of Western philosophy and his Socratic method of when you ask a question, you can ask it from lots of different directions. So I made a search engine based on that. So you type in a question and rather than like Google, you just press one button and get a list of replies. You type in the question, then you choose how you want to ask the question. So you could view evidence on that question. You could consider the implications of it. You could challenge your assumptions. Um, you could seek alternatives and another kind of few examples you go at in lots of different ways and that's an example of kind of looking backwards to then to look forwards that that's um so it's making me think as you're talking about that again like now i'm, <clears throat> I'm watching with kids and my kids but you know just this whole idea of you know this where we're are we're asking like bots questions all mm. the time when they're doing it with siri and everything like that and but actually, again, this idea of you know, we're, we're, you know, the, the need for critical thinking, yeah, the ability to really kind of think about this information that you're getting, yeah, 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 and therefore the type of questions you're really wanting to, the yeah, type of information you're really searching, yeah, feels really, really key or really important. This stuff, mm. um, and I think especially around climate narratives and right. things as well, and you just consider the difference of the lens that you're looking at this thing through will show you a different type of answer. 
and especially around plurality now as well and kind of a lot of um, the issues faced with a kind of a very scientific solution to this thing and implications on kind of the non-developed world and um, extreme carbon injustice um, and kind of just saying everyone has to come out of carbon economies all at the same time when there's certain um, countries that have, have reaped <coughs> the spoils of that for centuries now yeah. and done quite well out of it. Um, but yeah, just looking at the questions from different angles will get you to different answers. And that alone, not just the fact that you will see different answers and you can interpret those in different ways, but just the fact, the appreciation that, again, like we started with the difference between absolute and relative. Yeah. I was, it's making me think actually that that search and you're talking back to Socrates and accessing, you know, wisdom or ancient knowledge or, or thinking, mm. um, I think it was yesterday, I could be wrong on this, but I think I was reading a thing on looking at the bushfires in Australia and there was something I saw about how, and again, I'll need to clarify this, but I think what I was the, what I saw from it was that there were parts of the country that have not been affected by the fires and where um, indigenous Aboriginal people are still very much involved in the uh, decision-making around land usage yeah. and everything. Whereas a lot of the places where the fires are out of control, you know, they've just been stripped of yeah. of that kind of knowledge. Yeah, and yeah, so, yeah. You know, they see the, the land's very much being you know, seen as a resource extraction and yeah. clearing forests and mining and all this kind of stuff. So you're sort of creating these conditions. But it's just fascinating for me, again, that sort of... Because I think this idea of... I've talked about this before in another a, a, an episode, again, about this always looking forward, mm. the, the newness... And the almost this idea of when we when we try and go back and think what could we learn from from other types of thinking, yeah, and particularly when we go back long time thinking, you yeah, know, really long time thinking, there is this in this kind of shiny fast industrial world, almost quite often a sense of what can that tell us? Yeah, I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's all it's all up. It's all in front of us. Yeah, the, the knowledge. Um, so, so I'm really interested in that at this moment in time. Again, yeah, how might we be able to start to open up that and start to sort of work more with with information from other times? Yeah, um, or even the different types of knowledge embedded in that. Yeah, um, one of the books or the book I'm reading at the minute that I brought along is called How the World Thinks by Julian Baggini. Um, and it's a history of the world philosophy. And basically, he's arguing that philosophy, as we largely know it, know it, is Western philosophy. And it's kind of written and rational. But that has limits. Um, and it's not the only type of philosophy. There's Eastern philosophy or there's indigenous philosophy. And there's um, philosophies from different cultures and different parts of the world. Um, but one of the points he makes is that kind of embedding philosophy in written language and rationality gives it a limit. Yeah. There's kind of only so far it can go. And he uses the example of Japanese philosophy and how that's embedded in action and ritual a lot of the time. Um, so things like um, taekwondo and um, flower arranging or kind of raking gravel, there's um, philosophy embedded in those actions. Right. And just because it's not written doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Yeah. Or even like a, a podcast like this is an example of kind of philosophy or conversational knowledge being captured in a different way yeah. to 
the published word yeah. and things being published in book. And I think that's quite telling kind of the popularity of podcasts at the minute that people seem open to yes. different forms of access to knowledge. Yes. We live on a life-giving rock called Earth, hurtling through space. How bonkers is that? If you like what you're hearing, please do give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show. Have you come across um, David Abram's work? He, he wrote a book called Spell of the Sensuous, which talks a little bit as well about the evolution of you know the written word from an oral tradition to mm. written words. And he actually plots that as a kind of... He plots. He's exploring very much again a sort of um, our, our connection to a, an animate living Earth mm. that that was there as we evolved as humans for for most of our of our history, uh, and then the, the, he plots the kind of the written word as a as a key uh, moment of disconnection. Yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 from you know the ability because obviously you know you're building you were building your understanding of the world through connection to the non-human world, yeah. through oral passing of information, through sound, yeah, through all yeah. kinds of other intelligence. That then obviously, you know, you know, when you write, when you try it, when you start writing, even as a youngster, it can be very frustrating mm. trying to write a story because it's like it becomes down to like a few words that you know. Yeah. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. <laughs> Versus if you watch children you know, imagining and playing out, play acting, expressing yeah. stories yeah, yeah, yeah. through through oral forms. It's complete. It's deep, rich, yeah. and complex. And do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, so it's it's it's, it's yeah. I, th I think this stuff is 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 so interesting right now. Mm. Um, and 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 yeah. And how how do you make it accessible? So I guess. I'd love to. I'd love, I'd love to dig into some of your projects, mm. and I'd love to. You know, obviously, I'm erring towards. Uh, you know, you've been doing quite a lot around around the climate crisis and the climate and ecological situation recently. Um, I'm really, I'd love to talk about Circus Solar because that's that's. Um, I backed it on Kickstarter, so I want to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I love it. And and can you can you just can you just tell us about it? Like, where did it come from, and how does it work, and what's it all about? And what um. So it started again with like a single moment. Um, so it was while I was at the Royal College of Art and I was just sat in the canteen um, quite early on. Um, uh, my professor came, came and sat next to me um, and I was like, oh my God, because he's, he's very erudite and he's very respected. And I was like, oh, what, what, what do I say here in this situation? Um, but we just started getting into conversation about perspective for some reason. And he was talking about how perspective in architecture, there's lots of different ways of rendering it. So you've kind of got the single vanishing point. So imagine you stood on train tracks and they kind of seem like they're meeting in the distance, even though they're not. And that's the very classic one that we know. But then there's loads of different other versions of kind of opening vanishing points, fisheye lens, X, Y, Z. Um, and that kind of raised the question in my head that if there's, we can take these different perspectives of how we perceive space, is the same true as time? And I just did this small project and it was called 10 times time. So the number 10 X T-I-M-E, and it was just 10 different ways that we can perceive time um, based on doing a brief bit of research into it and their illustrations. I just did that as a, a small project while I was at the Royal College of Art. And then I revisited it a couple of years um, later while I was at Somerset House Studios. 
Um, and then I wanted to do it to embed those same ideas into something that was more common to how we perceive time. So there were watch faces, clock faces, because the problem I had before people were like, they got the idea, but it only went so far. So then I was like, well, what's the blockage there? It's because we all perceive time as we're taught it in school and as is all around us in culture, the, the clock and the watch face. So I just took that circular design um, or circular framework constraint and put these alternative notions in there. And that was a project called Sense of Time. And I did loads of them. There was about 30 of these designs, but then um, it got funded by King's College to make some prototypes. I was working with a professor of philosophy from King's College London. So we made 10 of them as working prototypes, um, which we should then go on display. And of those 10, there was one that seemed to resonate more with people and they just got instantaneously, which was what I'm calling Circa Solar Now. And it's basically just divides the day up into day and night with sunrise and sunsets, but it does it um automatically so it will look um to where you are on the world because we've all got kind of different um day lengths and night lengths wherever we are in the world and what where we are in the seasons and it will render those but then one of the key things that it did it had like a single hand which go round went round once in 24 hours as opposed to 12 hours and that hand was black and because the night time was black when it gets into night the hand essentially disappears and you don't know what time it is um and that was based on a Dave Eggers quote from the book The Circle that we are delicately calibrated between the clarity of day and the mystery of night and between the un and the unknown. And then we actually, we need that balance of not knowing. We shouldn't know absolutely everything. Um, so I took that design and then made it into a Kickstarter project in order that it could kind of be released on the App Store because before they were just closed prototypes. Um, so I made a whole Kickstarter project on that and luckily got the back in, you being one of them. <laughs> and now it's out in the world. I mean, there's there's a lot in this idea. Yeah, there's a lot, and it, there's a lot that really um, intrigues and interests me on so many levels. One is like this idea. I mean, you've used this fra the phrase the first redesign of time since 1761. Yeah, <laughs> what happened in 1761 then? Is that the oh, official? that was when the. Um Longitude Prize was one. Right. So it was the first essential um, timekeeper that could keep time anywhere in the world. And that's when time and space kind of really became conjointed. Um, discovery of the new world, colonialism, quantification of everything all happened then. But if you look at every, basically every watch face that you can get on your Apple Watch or your iPhone, it's just a duplication of that 1761 design that we haven't gone any further since then. Like the clock literally stopped ticking for time at that point um but there were so there's still so many different versions of time that's not like the i think people get confused and think that's the objective version of time that we reached out almost like a scientific experiment when something's discovered but it was just what it achieved with consensus basically that everyone was agreed that it works for its purpose of telling uh, a universal global time because it's it, it, if one thing so i find such is a because it, it challenges this big story this mm, idea yeah, of time yeah. and clocks. One of the two metaphysical dimensions right. we live in. Right. <laughs> Space and time. And so yeah. the idea that you actually again and I think again in these sort of the times we're the times we're 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 living in right now, mm. where we sort of there's a sense that we kind of we need we need to challenge a lot of kind of very, very thick stories on so many levels. Yeah. So this idea of time is fascinating. And um I guess the other thing that I find really interesting about it is is going back to our sort of ancient being, our ancient selves yeah. as, as as creatures, yeah, and yeah. our relationship 
with the world and particularly with the sun. Mm. Um, and so this, you know, when the, the ideas you're playing with, so tell me about, you started using, I mean, how, how you know, have you, because you were experimenting, right, with your own self yeah. using this new notion of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us a bit about that. Because I go. imagine it must have been pretty Yeah, this is where I start to sound like a bit of a nut. It's, it was almost LSD-esque, the... <laughs> having this time that this thing that i designed for one purpose and there was all of the kind of i did the research and all of the rational things that might be changed because of it but then there's like the lived experience of being around it um which was something entirely different so what i found was um this kind of feeling very good at turning up for meetings <laughs> yeah no i still do that i kind of Oh, only four minutes late today. Um, but actually, the deacceleration time was one of them. So I'm not... that We live in a very accelerated culture where everything gets faster, faster, faster. The living in this very kind of natural circadian rhythm version of time, day right, sunrise, sunset, just slowed everything down for me. An example of that and how it might affect our relationship to um climate crisis was recently i went out to um there was a conference in zurich called the daylight academy and lots of top scientists in the world researching themes of daylight now and just almost seeing this as one really underexplored area of science uh, that touches on so many different kind of human biology um animal living world philosophy, um, energy production, architecture, like all of these different fields can be brought together, isn't it? So they're having this conference in Zurich and by default, I just want, I was invited to go. So I looked at flights and I was like, why am I flying there when a lot of my work's exploring climate crisis and trying to slow this stuff down? So then I just did an alternative search on what a train journey would be. Um, and it was, I don't know, eight, nine hours from King's Cross over to Zurich with a change in Paris. And I thought that'd be really nice to sit on a train for eight hours with a book and look out the window and have that that slow journey um, rather than this, what is a construct as well, the idea that the flight is 90 minutes, but that's 90 minutes from when the airplane's wheels take off on one runway to touch another. You get all of the transit through the airport, get into the airport, the customs, the everything else that comes with it. But the essential pounds you spend on your way through. <laughs> exactly, yeah. All of those things. But the construct that the airplane travel is the fastest travel um, isn't true. Or even on the way. Yeah. The most pleasurable form, like the way that you're crammed in. And actually, once you get into Europe as well, I'm feeling like how much they invest in their train infrastructure. Like the train I got from Paris to Zurich is like a double decker and like really big windows you could look That'd out of amazing. and like um, really good Wi Fi as well. Um, the yeah, buffet like, car windows in the in the roofs and stuff yeah they, and the, the sense of community as well like people would go in there for business meetings and kind of like coming over having chats across chairs and everyone's very considerate of each other there's a different kind of space so that was one thing it deaccelerated me so now i'm kind of almost in that as a mode by default do i just always have to do the quickest journey from a to b but kind of more on an existential level was a reconnect connection with nature as a whole so when you start researching kind of our relationship to daylight you find that that sets our circadian rhythms which are really important to us but nearly all living organisms have got their own circadian rhythm there's only kind of a few creatures that live in deep caves or the deep sea that don't have kind of circadian rhythms set by daylight but then they have an indirect relationship to them in that if you're a deep sea creature you're feeding off of the animals that have died above that have had circadian rhythms 
that then die and float down. Um, but there's this commonality with nature that we share in being circadian beings that once I started using this version of time, I felt something in common with the pot, pot plant in my studio that we both had these kind of rhythms that were set by daylight and nothing and nothing to do with numbers. Like time is not a numerical phenomenon. Mm. Um, and that level of kind of a shared reality really opened me up to a lot of kind of empathy with the living world and respect for it or kind of duty of care for it as well. Or even the rhythms of kind of the cycles of growth and dormancy that I'm um, the boats in Victoria Park at the minute and I walked through there this morning and all of the trees don't have any leaves on them. But they're not dead. They're just dormant. And I think that and could be... A, and there's a lack of sun around. And mm, exactly. <laughs> and it's their, their evolutionary strategy for right. survival is to go into dormancy, yeah. to survive winters, and then come back to life in spring and then start photosynthesis because there's more sun. But this kind of exponential growth curve that we're stuck on, I think a way out of that isn't just pure degrowth. It's kind of the cycles of growth dormancy, growth dormancy, which are reflected in no nature and proven by evolution to work that maybe we should start to be reflecting those more and kind of just slow down a bit in winter and kind of people's opening hours to decrease and energy consumption and then go up in summer. Absolutely. When I mean, it's, it, I love this because it's, it's totally about moving into relationship with, with life as mm. it is. And yeah. so, again, this idea, I think it's always absolutely just fried my head constantly is this mad mad sort of Q1, Q2, Q3 yeah, 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 yeah. mentality. Yeah. So like by, by the last quarter of the year everyone's fried right yeah. just still trying to get yeah. this growth right out of it yeah. whereas like look outside the cube the sort of crazy human world and you'll see everything else slowing down you know yeah and and realize you know and, and so that growth thing you know that will come so you know you're sort of preparing you're preparing for the sort of the period of kind of you know the period of exponential growth spring summer you know yeah and yeah. Like, yeah. So, and lo and behold that's when the st we have more light right? yeah so and people are more happy to work in the evenings right. or start earlier or they're kind of they've got more vitamin d they've got yeah. more energy there's a reason why um, you don't want to get out of bed when it's dark right? yeah <laughs> yeah no my friend jay paul um suffers from seasonal seasonal affective disorder the sad so-called sad um syndrome and he um um, has got a really interesting notion that it's not a disorder. It's just natural. The, to feel lower in winter is what a tree is doing when it goes into dormancy. It's just a natural phenomenon. And it's kind of society that's programmed us that we need to be performing 11 out of 10. Yeah. Like, and, and would you actually feel okay if you weren't being asked to be pulling pulled out into, like, you know, frenetic pace and mm. you know order and you know <laughs> yeah yeah <clears throat> because actually maybe th yeah that 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 sort of embodied intelligence that we have around what you know how we feel about the shift in in uh, in daylight or yeah you know temperature and and all these things that's yeah deep, that's deep intelligence yeah, from, yeah, yeah. From, from a long long yeah from and another thing i found as well was kind of the relationship the types of work i was doing or research i was doing that and again based on that dave eggers quote that we're carefully calibrated between the clarity of day and the mystery of night so what i then started to find was that in winter when the evenings are longer i'd be exploring work that was more narrative mystery based and then in summer, when there's, there's a lot more light around, I was far more happier consuming kind of scientific, kind of objective knowledge. And then having the shifts between those two things as well, rather than just pursuing one route 
all year. Um, and then that's kind of, you can tie that back to ancient behaviors of the purpose of narrative when we, at nighttime, when we used to sit around fires telling stories um, and how kind of the exploration of mystery in nighttime is really innate to the human experience. And we will come together as communities at night because we feel less safe because the saber-toothed tiger has got more advantages on its side in the dark. Um, so we'll, we'll form as communities around fires and explore storytelling when we can't see as far so our imagination is more open to these things. Um, and now, I guess on on, on top of the um, on top of the the, the, the time <coughs> dimension, we've also added all of this all of this all of this light this uh, you know artificial light, mm. be it through yeah, screens yeah. and always on media. And because I was sorry, I was, it was there's been quite a lot of research into. Like people that are working through, you know, like natural um, artificial light, right? So when you yeah, have yeah. artificial lights on it in the evening, or yeah. people that are working shifts in the night, yeah, that's starting to impact kind of chronic stress-related illness and yeah, <coughs> all kinds of stuff which are sort of out of sync again with this with yeah, this yeah. natural rhythm. Yeah, well, um, the research there showing that it's one of the again really underexplored areas, but one of the most dangerous. Um, things that you can do to the human body other than filling it full of sugar and kind of um, pushing it towards diabetes and obesity or nicotine um, is to mess about with circadian rhythms, circadian systems, because they're very delicately calibrated and we've got like a hundred to 200,000 um, year evolution just as Homo sapiens behind us, let alone everything before that that's always aligned to the sun. And then this really recent phenomenon after the Industrial Revolution, which is only a few hundred years in, where we're just overriding it. Um, but yeah, people being forced into kind of night shift work or sitting under artificial light where it's not kind of calibrated um, to the right degrees, or they even found it with um, smartphones, were pumping blue light into our retinas late into the light. And we associate subconsciously blue light with daytime, with mornings. And that's why it upset our sleep patterns. And it was only in the last few years that... Um, Apple and Android have introduced night shift where they make phase the light towards kind of the warmer red um, spectrum, uh, the backlighting of it to help us kind of into sleep patterns. So how is that? <coughs> how do you um, have people have you do you, you hear from it? Are people experimenting with <coughs> with this circus solar? How is it? <coughs> do you have any sense of people trying to play with it in their own lives? Um, too early to tell. The anecdotal feedback's been positive, yeah. That it's, a lot of people have said it's changed their relationship um, to time and to kind of the importance of sunrise and sunset. Um, it's found its way into um, an exhibition at Somerset House at the minute called 24-7, which is really it's based on a book by Jonathan Crary of the same name, 24-7, which critiques late-stage capitalism and what he calls the ends of sleep, the... Sleep used to be kind of the last bastion when we weren't affected by people selling us stuff and capitalism's kind of reign. But now with our smart devices sending us pinging messages and people waking up in the night to check them or the expectations of work cultures to have people in always on communication that your boss can send you an email at 9 p.m. at night and expect an answer where well, you've got so much work to do, you'll take your laptop home and carry on working. That There's an infiltration um, in that um, so yeah, there's people kind of adopting it in that lens or just on a very, um, kind of 
basic level, just the idea that you can challenge the 24-hour day and this idea of hours, minutes, and seconds, which are complete constructs. There's nothing scientific or objective about them. It's just a narrative we bought into. And people that kind of seems to unlock something in someone's head that you can challenge it, that, of course, it's not a science. Just an idea. Yeah. Or it's, it's kind of this beat that we've... Um, organize ourselves around but there's lots of different beats that we can organize ourselves around which kind of the analogies to music aren't kind of um unintentional there um but the other thing that i, I say about circus solar is kind of realigning yourself with the nature of time that the sun rises and sunsets that affect our circadian systems are apparent and observable and that's what science tells us to do is kind of measure ourselves on things that can or align ourselves to things that can be measured and you can observe and quantify and anyone can observe them in the same way so if anything that version of time is more objective than the quantified one <clears throat> it's super interesting my um, friend of mine Eski Britton who I've had um, done a couple of podcasts with over the past I mean she's um, one of her um, inquiries is around lunar relationships mm. and um, and to the same thing I mean she's looking deeply at, at, um, at, at that relationship on lots of different dimensions but one of the things as you were talking reminded me because she was saying how she actually she now plots her her time um, her work projects you know against the kind of trajectory of the of, of the moon across yeah. the month. So she knows at certain phases yeah. this is a time where she needs to go in on herself. This is a time where she, so she can't she's not great at collaboration work. Yeah, yeah. This is a time when she's at her most creative and that's when she sort of schedules in those kind of pieces of work. And and she's been collecting a lot of data around this and it's you know, and I guess there's the there's the tidal time as well, which is sort of yeah. interesting for people that are sort of more have that connection to tides. Yeah. Um, through. Well, the tidal time's caught with the lunar time as well. So right. the moon that's pulling yeah, the tides right. through its gravity. So all of those things are linked. But yeah. that's actually, yeah, the, the the bigger plan for this is the Circa Solar, which is around um, daylight relationships, night day, night, in a 24-hour period. But the next um, one I've got in mind would be Circa Lunar, which is the, the calendar and the, the, the yearly, monthly cycle. Um, and to make an app based around that, um, and then the the final one could be Circa Flora, where there's um, floral clocks have been um, explored in the past more for their aesthetic purposes in kind of like church greens and things like that. But the the flowering of flowers and seasons, again, for indigenous cultures, that would signify time and things to um, points in a year when we, we'd go about doing something or they'd <coughs> put meaning on top of that. So that would become... The, the kind of the signals in a way but for a reason that kind of because those plants are natural they only start flowering when the conditions around them are right and then that relates back to the climate crisis because we've got like you know, we're pushing it all out of sync in january exactly and... yeah so all of those rhythms are coming out of sync so those cultures that have been observing that for centuries now are becoming out of sync but then they're noticing it and that's their interpretation of climate change rather than just looking at all these graphs and numbers it's the the flowers are doing different things or they used to these ones come out same time as these ones but now those ones aren't coming out at all and these ones do it early xyz so it's experienced and lived observation of it which i think should be far more explored or even our subconscious level living in cities we can pick those things up it's absolutely brilliant it's fascinating is it are you i mean you've got um i'd you know you've got a i'd say you're quite prolific you're you have a lot of you always have stuff you're doing you're you put stuff out in the world quite 
too much sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but tell me a little bit more about these other these other kind of climate related things that you've been doing over, mm. over the last over the last year. There was the, there was the sort of, there was this weather map thing that you were doing, wasn't it? The weather and yeah. climate and what's what, what just tell me how these things where they're coming from and what's well, this people listening to that I think it's a planted thing but it was the um your Fridays for the future so you remember your video you made like the call to arms my rant and, uh, yeah <laughs> so the kids are doing Fridays for the future right. and then you did Fridays for the future for everyone so you don't just have to be a teenager or a school striker to join these things Amazing. or you don't even have to be on the streets and I was doing bits and pieces around climate for that either kind of explicitly or implicitly but then when I saw that I was like right I'm gonna do it I'm gonna Brilliant. do Fridays for the future or I'm gonna do at least one day a week even if it's not a Friday because of work commitments or whatever sure. else a 20% um, rule of thumb mm. and I just started doing these little mini projects Amazing. that sometimes it'd be two Fridays or three Fridays in a way it would sum up to something or sometimes it would just be one like the um, the last one I did the climate triage which is based on a quote I read by Chris Packham in The Observer, where he was like saying, our job at the minute is triage. So it's kind of diagnosing what's what we've got left of the living world to get to the operating theatre and kind of get us through this next few years. And I thought that was a really interesting analogy to compare it to triage in kind of like medical emergency situations. So I made, I looked at how that's done and it's kind of like this um, algorithm of um table yes no answers and i did a, a, cl a version of that for climate um so a lot of them are just like really small projects but then i put them on my website and i put them on instagram and see how they go um, but one that got quite a lot of traction was around the idea of linking climate to weather and how they're just the same thing but through different lenses and it starts to come back so that came from the time project that I was doing and I was talking to a climate scientist about it and our kind of perspectives interpretations of time and I thought it was really interesting because as a climate scientist we define the difference between climate and weather is weather is days so if you think of Friday Saturday and Sunday if Friday's raining Saturday's overcast and Sunday's um, sunny that's not proof of climate change that's just the weather getting hotter over three days um, but for climate data it's 30 years periods of 30 years if you can take an average temperature for 1900 1930 1960 um, 1990 and it's going up you've got proof scientific proof yeah. that global warming's happening um, so I thought that was really interesting these two different ways of looking at the same thing get you to different places and how again as we've spoken about are very short-termist western view of the world just thinking in quarters or years that time, we yeah. don't think in 30 years is a lot of time for us let alone centuries or millennia um so what what happened if you paired the two up and i was looking through um the observer one week and i saw the weather report on the final page and they just the garden just started doing the carbon readings from um, that little island in Hawaii, and they yeah. just put it in there as raw information. And it's really hard to kind of understand what it means. It's good that they've started doing it, but it's hard to understand what this is significance because as humans, we like narratives. So I just sketched up a speculative design for an alternative weather report that a newspaper might use where you get kind of a three-day forecast, but then you also get a 90-year forecast. So it shows you on this day in 30 years what the weather might be like. And... Yeah, if we have temperature <coughs> increases, then it's going to be really hot. It's very striking, mm. right? Because it's, um, 
I, I, I yeah, thought, thought that was so interesting. And there was some engagement, you got some interesting engagement around it. In social media, it got quite a lot of traction, yeah. And there's, especially there's a lot of movement around longer term thinking. There's Long Now Foundation. Yeah. Um, and a lot of other people in the climate arena yeah. looking at that. Um, There's Ella. Do you know Ella Saltmarsh? But she, her, she's in, she has this um, collaboration. She's on the, lo the Long Time Project. Yes. Again, looking at kind of how do we... I think, yeah, I got a retweet out of them. Shifting this... Again, how do we shift this this narrative yeah. in our culture of... Yeah, yeah. Of away from this, you know, <clears throat> my life, m this moment... To almost sort of, you know, to the phrase I can't remember who it was that talked about, you know, well, you know, can we be good ancestors? You know, yeah, sort of. That's Roman stuff, isn't right. it? Right. Um, right. Yeah. So yeah, he's got a new book coming out on that idea of good ancestors as right. well, just thinking ourselves as we are passing the baton on, right? And what a future generation is going to make yeah. of us, and probably not not a lot yeah. at the minute the way we're going. Well, <coughs> Robert McFarlane's been talking about this in, in in recently about again, yeah, this sort of it, this this moment in time of being what a time for legacy because yeah. a responsibility as well because it's very clear now probably for the first you know first generation where it's very clear what we're potentially leaving behind yeah a bloody mess yeah yeah know? and so this whole sense of you know good ancestry and responsibility yeah uh, as a species yeah is sort of very kind of yeah. and asking what people are going to think of us right we are so status obsessed and so caught up in our individualistic narratives the that a lot of the time is based on people immediately around us and in our social media circles and if they respect us or if we go and give talks and everyone quotes us and xyz but what if people haven't even been born yet right how do they respect us and then what how does that make us feel about our status if they think that we're an absolute joke mm. that we had all of the tools at our disposal all the information was there and we were just so living like this literally living like there's no tomorrow um so yeah that project was exploring a lot of those things and another key thing that kind of came up to me or maybe why it resonated with people was the idea of domesticating this kind of this information and this thinking about the climate crisis and bringing it into everyday conversation and everyday narratives it is a bit decoupled when it is in the IPCC reports and it's just graphs going up. Um, and the weather is something that we engage with and as in Britain particularly, we're obsessed with weather <laughs> yes, and conversations about weather or checking weather thing, reports. I checked it before I came to meet you today, see if I needed my umbrella. <laughs> but <laughs> if you day. then put climate in the same space, it forces people to appraise it. Um, and the other di idea with it as well is that if that climate and level report was just speculating about this day in history in 30 years, it changes it on a daily basis. So it's not always as, oh, it's going to be 1.5, 1.7 for the whole of that year and that decade. And it's just a single kind of thing. If you think of it, it could change. You could say London's like Barcelona in April today which again, there's reports showing that, that we're moving, if we carry on like this, London will have the same climate as Barcelona. So then you can just take what Barcelona's weather report is for today and put that on top of London yeah. and see how that looks and feels a bit alien, but that's what it would be like. Yeah. And then people can imagine, right, in 30 years, I'll probably still be alive, I'm still in London, I'll be going out in Barcelona yeah. in April. That's that's challenging, isn't it? Because if in many ways, I mean, the average Londoner will probably be delighted that uh, this is yeah problems we get to, isn't it? We're, we're, we're going to become Barcelona because at the moment we're jumping on yeah. planes to go to yeah. Barcelona. But I don't know. You know, again, it's these. Um, it, that's the thing, isn't it? And, I, and again, I guess for me, I'm always interested again in the sense of 
our sense of responsibility what you know we you know we talk about you know this whole thing of climate justice you know and what yeah. we're doing what we do here today has impacts everywhere yeah you know, and our our high emitting lifestyles are impacting those who've who've contributed the least yeah you know, in other parts of the yeah. world but so that came out in this right. the graphic that i did as well that on the existing weather report it has around the world at the bottom of it and it's like key cities and it shows what their temperature weather is going to be um, so I took that and then projected into the future and then um, found that it would be um, the so-called developing world or the global south, which is far more um, unevenly affected by this and gets far less of a pleasant output of it, kind of un completely unlivable drought-esque conditions. Um, so then I split that into kind of um, global north and global south. And then when you have kind of like a color-coded temperature rise on it, you can then see the implications um, where people think that it might just be a pleasant effect. And that's the whole narrative that Russia are going with at the right. minute, isn't it? Yeah. That this is actually going to be a good thing Hopefully for yeah. agriculture. Kinds of and, for us as yeah, a, as a nation. but then there's other cities that are really, really going to be, yeah. and then because of that they might have to put more air conditioning in so it just makes the whole thing exponentially yeah. worse and just carries on and on yes <laughs> <laughs> so where so, to go from that so exactly so um well we're gonna we've got a little bit of a time constraint which is uh, talking about time which <laughs> mm. <laughs> is uh if we were going by the uh, if we were going by the uh, Circa Solar, we could just keep pumping for another couple of hours. But uh, we still got some daylight <laughs> left. Yeah. Got some good daylight to go. Um, t t t um, f f for what's coming up for you this year? Like, what's where can people check out some of your work? And yeah, tell me a little bit of anything that anything that you can share about things coming up for you, twenty twenty. Um, so checking out the work ted hunt dot com. I normally put things on as kind of that's yep. the, the living archive and that's very um lots going on in yep. kind of the way that i do these small experiments and then try to join dots between things um and then in, i'll stick all that in the in the show notes yeah and then on instagram as well um i i whenever i do something i publish it to there and that seems to be where it gets its most, tr most traction really yeah. twitter seems to be turning off for me at the minute for some reason <laughs> it's just not getting the engagement anymore no. i don't know what that's all about no failed to get me anywhere to record I a think, podcast I yeah <laughs> everyone's becoming more visual maybe or yeah. there's something twitter is just too political um in terms of work the show at somerset house where these projects are exhibited in is on till the end of the month and that's a really interesting show actually that critiquing kind of capitalism's relationship to time there's not a lot of stuff that's explicitly to do with climate there but there's a lot that implicitly you can really kind of sense these themes coming through and how artists are interpreting it um i'm going out to barcelona to give a talk uh, a conference called internet age media i think that's the end of march and that's around exploring the search engine stuff that i do i did a workshop with them last year where i just took these notions of um, creating different search engines based on different philosophies, but then made it pluralist, so just made a template and then gave it out to a room full of 30 people and said, right, what principle would you base your search engine on um, and what would be the variables? And then they wrote those in and then we put them all on the wall and everyone spoke through it and you just realize how many different perspectives on information and knowledge you can take. Um, so I'm going to revisit that and um, hopefully build some of those up as um, narratives and kind of case studies 
and present those in Barcelona. Um, the Circa Luna I'd really like to do as well um, and just take it a, take the Circa Solar project a step on. Yeah, you must do that. Sounds amazing. I was reading about um, the decolonization of the calendar. So one of the things I've said about Circa Solar is how it decolonizes time and how this quantified version of time that was set in Greenwich and kind of is very kind of British Empire-esque and then was imposed on the rest of the world was a colonialist tool as much as it is anything else. And if you just take that for time as 24 hours, hours, minutes, seconds, then the calendar has also got those things going on. Um, so returning to um, the 13-month lunar calendar um, and then living with that as well and then seeing what that does to me, what yeah, that does brilliant. to other people. Um, and yeah, more Fridays for the future for yeah, everyone as so, well. I'm so chuffed you've done that and that's brilliant because I'm actually starting to write a little bit about this, that about this, um, you know, this, 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 this kind of nudge out that could we, could we start using those of us who have the time mm. <laughs> could we start using yeah. it more around the things that interest us to sort of you know whether it's awareness raising or creative ways of engaging people or whether it's ideas whatever it might be right that's the whole point it's just like you know you, you've got you've got you've got young marchers out and striking but there's so many ways that um those that are that are sort of leaning into this problem could be doing yeah. stuff around it so uh, yeah i'm delighted you've uh you've uh you've taken the baton i'm going to uh I'm, we're going to be sort of giving a big push on it into the into the spring to feel to free to use any example i will but yeah it I does will, totally. I'd, I'd encourage people to do the same almost not as um a burden or a sense of they have to it's uh, when you do start thinking about it and exploring it you realize like how much of the most challenging but maybe the most interesting questions that humans have ever faced in a way are embedded within this and how there's so many opportunities like uh, you start looking into it and it's it's easy to get um, weighed down by the dystopianness of it. But then when you start thinking about the utopian notion of like things yeah. could be different and we could go towards these things and there could be kind of like equality based in kind of global societies and um, a far better relationship with the natural world where we see ourselves as a part of it, not apart from it and what that world might look yeah. like. I mean, it's abs I'm absolutely 100% with you. I mean, it's absolutely a time for curiosity and, and mm. questions right now and like working with those questions that you that you have. Mm. Um, so super interesting. So look, um, thank you so much for uh, for the time for this. No worries. <laughs> it's great talking. And uh, I'm going to try and I think I'm going to I'm going to challenge myself to use Circa Solar once we get out. Once we get once the daylight starts um, increasing, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to give myself a period of time where I actually try and play with it because I think it's it's so interesting mm. and it really cares. And all the stuff you do is is amazing and it's been a delight to have you here. And um, well, I'll share all your all your uh, links and projects in the show notes. Just to close off, it's a question I often ask folks about, you know, being on the spaceship Earth right now. What would you what would your thought be to those who are kind of thinking that right now? Like, you know, this idea that we're you know, we're all we're all crew here. There are no passengers on this on this earth. What does that how does that how would you what would you say to that right now? Um to me my immediate response is slightly critical i was watching an adam curtis documentary recently where he was being quite critical of the buckminster fuller he's the spaceship earth where it was being critical of it it was thinking of the earth as um a spaceship is thinking of it as a mechanism and a closed system and one that humans have control of and we are the crew um which kind of brought into my mind this idea that we're the crew the humans but what about the non-human crew 
Um, they're currently the ones that are flying the ship. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and the That's bacteria. The problem. We and, are. And the, exactly. Because we the problem right now. The, the, the problem. Yeah, that we are. are. <laughs> the problem is we're the fucking passengers. We think we're we're doing it, <laughs> yeah. but we're just we're just sending it towards the Death Star or into Death Drive, um, into a sense. So yeah, the idea would be around the non-human crew and the actual the proportionality of it. Another thing that I found with my research on Circa Solar was that. Of all of the biosphere on Earth, humans make up 0.01%. Non-humans are 99.99%. So then I made a visual of that. And if you put like a one pixel graphic on your laptop screen in front of you, you just see and that represents humans. And then you make a circle for non-humans. You just see the edge of it on the corner of your screen. And the entire size of it would probably be the same as you standing up. And that's our proportionality. But everything we seem to talk about, everything that's in our newspapers and books is concerned with issues inside that pixel. And I think yeah. the more that we can think of this other, yeah. the non-human, which is far, far bigger than us, yeah. but we're a part of it as well. And I think that's the overlap, between, like the Venn diagram bit. We put our pixel on top of that. And that's what Circus Solar is trying to do as well. Just think of us, all these living organisms as having circadian beings. We've got something in common with them mm. and we're shared and we're not apart from them. We're a part of this thing. So yeah, the spaceship Earth as everything and everyone. Yeah, I love that. And uh, chimes it. The, 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 the sort of idea I'm trying to explore is, is this idea of becoming crew, i.e. what can we learn from the, from the, all the non-human mm. crew that are currently really creating the conditions for life? Yeah. And uh, how do we step into that? How do we yeah. actively sort of like, what's my role in this now? But Definitely. Ted, thank you. Um, good luck. And uh, we'll thank be in you. touch. Thank you, listeners. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with the marvellous Ted Hunt. Ted, I mean, what a legend, eh? Um, we could have chatted uh, and chatted and chatted, and I think we'll do another one down the line for sure. Um, check Ted's work out. Uh, the, I, I guarantee there's gonna be a, we're going to hear a lot from Ted this year. I'll put links in the show notes, but um, he's just, yeah, incredible mind and ability to express uh through these uh different ways of thinking and seeing and feeling the world around us um i just love circa solar like imagine i mean that would be an experiment right like like what would happen if we just all binned our watches for a couple of weeks and all shifted to circa solar time do you know what i mean circa solar time all operating off that beautiful thing that ted's created um, tuning in to our sort of deep ancient circadian rhythm, uh, navigating our daily lives through um, the sun itself and light and dark. I think that would be extraordinary. I mean, I'm going to do that myself. I'm actually, I'm working with the app. I'm actually going to do some stuff, mainly at the moment around kind of weekends, but I'd like to sort of, to actually sort of do a bit of uh, experimentation. So who's up for that? Let's make that happen. Wouldn't that be cool? Could we get, could we get a whole town on Circa Solar Time? Um or a city. Imagine a country on Circus Solar. Maybe that's going a bit too far, too quick. But I just love the idea of um, of of that, of shifting to a different way of um, of connecting into the rhythm of this beautiful planet, the Spaceship Earth. So thanks a lot for listening. Um, oh, just quickly as well, uh, I have to say Ted mentioned the Friday Future Love, which was lovely and quite flattering to hear that uh, my rambling rant from May on YouTube, uh, which I'll link to if you're interested, uh, inspired Ted to uh, up his output around climate. But Friday Future Love is a simple idea. It's just this idea of like, you know, uh, the wonderful kids and 
you know, inspired by Greta Thunberg are out striking on the streets. And what 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 could, what could others? What could we do? What could we do on a Friday, which didn't necessarily involve striking, um, but it could involve using our sort of talents and energies um, to do stuff. It's around a sort of innovation day for the planet at large, where we take collective action to reimagine and redesign our modern human operating systems into something more uh, regenerative and beautiful and life sustaining. So. Um, if you're interested in taking part in that, we're upping that. We're upping the tempo on FridayFuture.love. Uh, you can sign up on FridayFuture.love and uh, we'll be getting some stuff going in February. Um, but uh, yes, mass participation to uh, redesign the world. We like that. Um, so thanks for listening. If there's if this brought any questions or ideas or, or things that have surfaced during this episode, um, please do reach out. Always up for hearing from everyone. Um, you can get us uh, get me at dan at thespaceship.earth or on Instagram at thespaceship.earth. Uh, we have a newsletter now. Um, you know, which you can sign up to on a monthly basis. You can find that on the on the on the site on the spaceship earth. Um, get some updates from us on what's going on in this world. Um, but thanks a lot for listening. If you like, if you like what you're hearing, please share an episode. Please give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or a review or just a bit of love. Love it won't take you long. Take a few seconds, but it all helps. It all helps others find the podcast. So. Thanks a lot for listening. Really appreciate uh, you tuning in. Um, remember, folks, there's no passengers on Spaceship Earth. We're all crew. Let's make 2020 an enormous year of crew-like behaviour. Uh, until next time, peace and out. Mm-hmm.